0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom McCall about analytic Christology, Trinity, social Trinitarianism, the theological interpretation of Scripture. And much more. So we cover all sorts of topics related to those things. We talk about social Trinitarianism. We talk about models of modern personhood. We talk about the historical tradition behind whatever it is that social Trinitarianism might mean. Uh, We talk about John 17 and how the intra-Trinitarian love, if that's a legitimate category or not, All sorts of great stuff in this episode. We even get a little bit of advice on potential academic pursuits for those interested in doing that. So as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to create an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. Brandon is not with us today, so I don't have anybody to keep uh, me in check, so that'll be fun. But... When I talk about these virtues, I always like to remind people that we get new listeners all the time. The reason that we do that is because, number one, we actually think those are important as Christians, but we also think they're important as uh, serious Christian thinkers. So I think a lot of people think, uh, want to think well, uh, but they want to be jerks about it. Uh, That's not everybody across the board, but we've seen that seems to be, at least in the internet age, uh, something that we are all prone to fall back on. So we're trying to promote... Um, ways of thinking that we think are consistent uh, with the Christian way of life. So we've just picked those four uh, to focus on, but we've taken them pretty much from James 3. So the wisdom that is from above, and we just try to pursue those sorts of things. But today, we're to talk with Dr. Tom McCall, who is at Asbury Theological Seminary now, I believe before that was at Trinity. I'll let him uh, give the official title of what his job description is and everything. But I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Uh, We're going to talk about his new book, Analytic Christi- Christology and the Theological Interpretation of Scripture, which is going to cover a ton of ground. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I am in the mood of being extra friendly today, so maybe people will say, I've been a little bit too nice to you, but I can't I can't get over the fact that we want to be cheerful, we want to be friendly, we want to, to lift up others who are d- trying to be faithful Christians and uphold faithful Orthodox doctrine. You know, Tom, me and you— we come from different theological traditions, and yet we share the same goals and desires and aims in, in large measure. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of confessionalism. We're able to say, we understand the, the, the core central doctrine of the ecumenical creeds. We are on the same team with those things. And we understand also with the areas that we disagree in, and that's okay. And we can discuss those and talk about those and and push back on each other and yet still be friends at the end of the day. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And yeah. I do plan on being extra friendly. I'm going to be extra friendly because I think the Christian faith demands friendliness toward one another. That doesn't always mean agreement. That doesn't always mean shying back from potential disagreement and potential, I guess, debates, but it does require us to be humble, gentle, and all those sorts of virtues. So Tom, before we get started, those who aren't familiar with you, which I imagine probably a good chunk of our listeners have no idea who you are. The other half probably know you very well so give me a little bit of description about who you are and then what is it that got you interested in analytic theology uh, Trinity Christology those sorts of things well thank you Jordan it's
1: great to be with you and I've been looking forward to this for a while too I'm not very um, I'm not very experienced in in this format so um, people will probably figure that out on their own soon enough. Uh, but yeah, um, it's great to, but it's great to be with you. I, you're right. I teach theology at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, I've been here for one year, one year, well, this is my first year. Um, I taught for one year at Asbury University and before that for 16 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. and uh, also have taught sort of off and on regularly but part time at the University of St. Andrews in their Lagos Institute for Exegetical and Analytic Theology. And um, I've been working in, in, on areas of Trinity and Christology really since I first began to be interested in, in theology at all. These are sort of some of the first topics that grabbed my attention and they've honestly never quite let go. Although I've moved to work on other things as well. I, I'm just fascinated by these and see them both as intellectually really, really challenging, but also as spiritually edifying. And so i am drawn to them for those reasons. I, but um, before the I was teaching, I did pastor a church in Southwestern Michigan for three years and one in South Central Alaska for three years before that. And those were, those are fabulous years. And I really, um, really loved that time.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I had no idea. And I, that's one thing we always love is when we get people on the podcast who think at a really high level who have a pastoral heart. So I, I I love that. Um, before I I ask you any questions about this book and everything, I want to plug, uh, One book that we're not going to talk about is just An Invitation to Analytic Christology. Or not Analytic Christology, An Invitation to Analytic Theology. So the one you did with IVP, I don't know how many years ago that was, uh, super affordable. So the reason I plug this book is, number one, because it's a great book. Number two, uh, your everyday person can both buy it and understand it. So if you're interested (laughs) in analytic theology, I feel like I get questions all the time, like, what in the world is analytic theology? I don't understand it. Um, That is the place to start, in my opinion. So I would go buy a copy of Tom's book. It's you can go get it on Amazon for like 16 or 17 bucks. Uh, I won't set you back much. And I think it's, it's great because it's, it's clear it's understandable and you get, and you give a lot of t- case studies. So like, this is how it actually looks in practice and here's what we can glean from it. Uh, so I think that's a great book. Now, this one in particular that I just read, uh, let me pull it up here. Analytic Christology and the theological interpretation of the new Testament with OUP. Um, I think it's a fabulous book as well. So if if, if you want to go buy an OUP book, um, I say do it. Uh, obviously, those are big bucks these days, so convince your library to buy it if you don't have the budget for it. But I think there's a ton of ground we can cover in this. You, you cover so much, so maybe we just start with what in the world is uh, the theological interpretation of Scripture, and what is analytic theology, and... Um, How do these things relate? Because I don't know many people who are doing theological interpretation of scripture with that title who know or care about analytic theology. Well, uh,
1: thankfully there, there is a, I think the next, you know, half generation or so we'll we'll see a change there partly because of the, the fabulous work that Alan Torrance and others started at St. Andrews. Um, Alan's vision of there was just, it's just fabulous. And and Oliver Crisp and others, a whole bunch of other great people are are carrying that on. But that's intentionally trying to bring together um, theological interpretation of Scripture with analytic analytic theology on various topics. Um, so you ask, what is theological interpretation theological interpretation of Scripture? As you know, uh, lots of things, lots of different vessels fly under that flag, and. They don't always look the same. So, let me just try to be brief, but also, you know, just easy and my understanding of it. So, at one level, it's just trying our best to read scripture to understand what it's teaching about God. That's theological interpretation about God and everything else in relation to God. In other words, it's not reading the text of the Old or New Testament in the first instance to try to figure out. Uh, things behind the text or underneath the text with respect to, say, authorship or different things. Uh, Primary interests are not literary. Uh, Literary uh, readings can be really helpful, in my view, in helping us um, gain a a deeper theological understanding. But that's literary readings are not the point. Um, They're helpful to get to the point, but that's not the point. So just really basic theological interpretation of Scripture is just reading Scripture to learn what it's revealing to us about God and about everything in relation to God. Now, the way I see it, and and different people take different views on this, um, I'm kind of greedy. I want the whole picture. In other words, some people take TIS just to be pre-critical or pre-modern readings of Scripture. And I think that there is a great deal to learn from historic theological interpretation of the Bible. And the more I read of historic biblical commentary, in many cases, the more impressed I am and the more I think there's the more value I think there is in that. But I don't pit, want to pit this against anything done in a contemporary setting. And I, I actually think that recent work, really recent work, um, especially in Pauline studies, but not strictly there, has been really theologically interesting and fruitful. And um, I mean, older, you know, the, the so called older Protestant readings um, that still have a life today. New, so-called new perspective interpretations and and so-called apocalyptic interpretations are all really theologically interesting, and even if I end up sometimes I do, but I end up judging that various interpreters take the wrong turn. In many cases, in many cases, for me at least, they they help me see the critical issues better. And so, what what I mean by theological interpretation is again just most basically. What's it saying about God? And what do we learn about God from, from Scripture? And to get there, we want, I want the whole range of resources, as much as I can access them at least. And that includes both traditional commentary on Scripture, that is traditional readings, patristic, medieval, and Reformation, post-Reformation readings, which I think are especially good in many cases. And, um, and also uh, late 20th, early t- 21st century theological commentary. Um, and and just Pauline studies in particular. So I want it all. Now, analytic theology, uh, I first got into analytic theology, actually kind of before. I remember talking to Mike Ray and Oliver Crisp back in like 04, 05, and we were talking about this thing and like, should we get together? Can we get a conference? The original analytic theology book, I remember us talking together about possible names because, you know, theologians, philosophers, senior, junior. I said, well, I'm on the junior end. I could open there. Um, So they wanted some you know, some variety on these things, but we didn't know what to call it. And then sort of the name sort of fell out in late theology. The reason I was first interested in it, honestly, uh, is because I had been reading uh, scholastic theology. Mm-hmm. And then I compared um, reading scholastic theologians with reading late 20th century theologians. And sometimes I thought that the, what was going on in the late 20th century discussions was really interesting, but even when I did, it didn't have the rigor right? It just didn't have the intellectual um, solidity to it. It just wasn't as strong in in almost all cases, not every, but in almost all cases. And so I I thought, I want to see theology that benefits from more recent uh, biblical studies, but that's more like that older stuff. So what I mean by analytic theology is just Theology that's written, striving for clarity of expression and rigor of argument. That's all. I'm, that's that's basically what I'm looking for. Now, there are, and I talk about this you know, a bit in this book, uh, more so in the book, you thankfully, hey, thanks for plugging the other book for me. But I, I do discuss it a good bit more there. And um, Mike Ray and Oliver Crisp do in their chapters in the original analytic, analytic theology book. There, there are ways to get more precise about it. But the the short version is, Striving for clarity of expression and rigor of argument and uh, and intentionally appreciating the sort of accountability that comes with that. It's harder to hide (laughs) when when you're striving for clarity of expression and when you're exposing your arguments to critique. It's also really good for us for for those reasons.
0: Yeah, no, that, that last point, I think, is especially true. Um, I know my own PhD supervisor. What he, he tells me all the time: you need to write airproof, right? Like writing. It's air airproofing your writing is a virtue. Um, and there's a sense in which um, he doesn't let me hide anything, uh, and that's I, I think a good thing because you realize, yeah, what does that mean? I, I actually have no idea. Everybody says that word, but you know, I just kind of threw it in there, and now I need to actually think about it. Um, and it is funny you mentioned scholasticism. How you're reading that in the rigor? At least for me. I know a lot of people have suspicions about analytic theology um, from different quarters. And I think part of that's just because they don't know what it is, but there's, it's, it's odd to me that a lot of the suspicion has seemed to come from people who really like the scholastics and value them. And I think, are you, you just must not be reading analytic theology because I feel like they're pretty much, they're trying to do the same sort of thing. I know,
1: I know. I know. And that's actually um, the, the sort of, virtues of some of the older analytic tradition is is what I'm trying to move toward in the book we're talking about tonight and that is um, one way I think that some of the older and some of the older scholastic theologians and this isn't to endorse everything here obviously uh, everything that was going on but one of the virtues that I really appreciate about some of their work is that they were able to um, sometimes it seems like almost effortlessly use tools in logic and metaphysics, while also um, doing biblical exegesis. And and, in a way that was, and there's a third piece, in a way that was informed by the patristic and, and medieval traditions. I'm just like, that's a lot going on. And even when they don't do it maybe quite right, it's still really impressive work. And by comparison, some of today's analytic theology is really good in the logic and metaphysics side but less so in this history of doctrine and less so yet sometimes with respect to to engagement with with Christian Scripture. So this is an effort to sort of um, uh, take take a couple of small steps in that direction.
0: Yeah, and I think you did a fabulous job of, of putting all these things together. Because uh, like you mentioned, sometimes people are really good at one, one or two things. I think you are really good at a lot of things. So
1: <laughs> I need— Well, thanks. I I mean, I've got a lot. I'm aware of where I fall short. So, you
0: know, (laughs) I would plug your Arminius book, but I haven't read it. Uh, I want to. So I'm excited to read it, (laughs) but I haven't. Um, So if anybody wants to read about Arminius, go check out out Tom's book. Now, this one in particular, you've got a lot of, I think, really interesting stuff in here. One area, one chapter I, I wanted to focus on. Um, in particular. Well, you know, we talked to J.C. Beal, I don't know how many months ago, and you've got a whole chapter on his stuff. And I'd love to get into that. But I want to focus on chapter five, I think, for the most part. So you've got, uh, it's called the communion of the Son with the Father. So Trinitarian sort of questions. Um, And you walk through a good bit of, you know, what social Trinitarianism is and what it isn't. Uh, And I want to focus here because at least in my own um, theological, I guess, tribe or area. Social Trinitarianism is a really big, like, I don't know, almost like a boogeyman word, right? People say social Trinitarianism, but they don't really know what they're talking about or what it means. So help me, and I thought your chapter was excellent. I learned a lot. So help me, what is social Trinitarianism? And (laughs) maybe walk me through what it isn't as well as you're doing that maybe that's the clearer way to get there
1: (laughs) yeah so yeah let's let's go at it that way all right um let me just say a bit just bit of um to date myself when i was a when i was starting out as a theology student social trinitarianism was the cool thing and i mean the cool kids were social trinitarians And if you wanted to sound smart at a conference, you know, you would say, I have a social Trinitarian view of X (laughs) or a social Trinitarian doctrine of X, right? And everyone was supposed to go, oh, wow. Like it had this sort of air of profundity to it. And now you laugh, right? Because you know, right? I mean, the the tables have turned so hard that now in some circles – even to give social Trinitarianism a, a, like a a respectful hearing is to grant too much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, hold your nose around it. Like it's like, and nobody wants to own this and nobody wants to do it. One of the things that I, and this is the analytic side of me coming out um, is that I'm not sure a lot of people who were really into it back then knew exactly what it was. It was just cool to be that. And I'm not sure a lot of people that are against it these days also are real clear about what they think it is. So you're right. In the first part of this chapter, I just try to disambiguate uh, what the term means. And so I go through more descriptively initially through several, I just try to walk through several fairly common uses of the term. Uh, I'm just going to be clear. I just make this as clear as I can up front. I wish we just dropped the term. I I actually, I think we've reached the place where it's no longer even helpful, whether people are defending or attacking, because the uses of the, it's just the label itself can be hooked onto so many different views, some of which are mutually exclusive, I think, uh, that it, we don't really know what we're talking about unless we take the time we're taking right now to really carefully try to drill down and disambiguate what we mean, and do we really need to do that every time or can we move on? So, but since that's where we're at right now, and that's what my chapter does, I guess I'll do a little <laughs> bit more of that myself. Um, but I just want to say up front, I, I think we'd be better off if we just dropped it. If we can't do that, at least be clear about what we're talking about, right? So when people start, when they say, here's why social Trinitarianism is is so embarrassingly horrible, at least say, this is what I mean by social Trinitarianism. Um, um, or when one of the dinosaurs at, at the conference says, but wait, I think I'm still a social Trinitarian. OK, tell us what you mean before you go any further, because it just means so many different things. So here, here's a short version, one of them, a uh, short list. One of the ways it's used is just with reference to various efforts to draw out so-called sociopolitical and ethical implications from the doctrine. And so a, a doctrine that tries to be sort of user-friendly or applicable turns out to be called a social trinity. You know, in other words, the, the basic point is God is said to be social. Therefore, God gives us a kind of blueprint for how societies are supposed to be structured. So that project gets called social trinitarianism. What some people mean, and this was a bigger deal, like I think like in the 80s, before, before de Ranion, uh, for sure, it takes a more historical, purports to take a more historical approach. It's bad history, but it it's the way it sets it up. Where on the one hand, you've got the Latin folk or Western theologians, especially the A Team, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas, and you know, allegedly they emphasize oneness and they're um borderline Unitarian and they're not really thoroughly Trinitarian. And on the other side, you've got the, the beautiful Eastern Greek theologians, especially the Cappadocians, right? And, and, well, this story has had legs for way too long. Um, and his good, no, historians have, have shown that it's, 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 it's never been a good story. Uh, but sometimes the people who tell that story and then say the Easterners who loved relationality and communion and all those good words, they were the social Trinitarians. And so our project is sort of to recover what was lost in the early fifth century, probably. And, and we're, our project is, quote, unquote, social Trinitarians. So that's, that's kind of a more historical or retrievalist idea. So signs that label social Trinity is used that way. Other times, I think it's used, just used with respect to any doctrine that tries to make use of the so-called social analogy. You know, um, like Gregory of Nyssa, Peter James and John, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Adam, Eve, and Seth, which is much cooler, by the way, because you have one who is begotten, one who proceeds without being begotten, and one who is neither proceeds nor begotten. So Adam, Eve, and Seth, right? I'm, j- I'm not trying to no, sell you no. on the analogy. I'm just saying, I'm, j- I'm just saying there there are these references to these analogies within the tradition. And so sometimes the, the label social Trinitarianism is just any doctrine that, that uses those analogies. But this doesn't work very well because a lot of the, the premier sort of social Trinitarians don't put, don't put much weight on the analogies. I'm talking like Jürgen Moltmann and others. Um, that analogy just doesn't really do much work for him. It, he doesn't need it. Um, some do, like Neil Plantinga and Richard Swinburne will use these sort of analogies, but it, it doesn't seem to be that helpful. Another way, um, so-called modern notion of personhood. So anyone who goes with that is a social Trinitarian. Um, that doesn't work that well either because turns out there is no such thing called the modern notion of personhood. Uh, there's lots of different modern accounts of personhood, and they're not all the same
0: thing. So that's the one I think that I see most often. the, the moder- I yeah. see that term thrown a lot. Yep. The modern version of personhood is what they're trying to do and import into the Trinity.
1: Yep. So that, that's a fairly common or very common uh, charge. And we can talk more about that, um, about those concerns and their legitimacy and all. Um, but that that is one of the uses. But another time, and this is probably related to it, but I mean, this has come out recently. And, and I mean, during the 20th century, we saw it multiple times, but even really recently, like Craig Carter's yeah. recent book. He, he does this. So it's any doctrine according to which there's love within the Trinity mm. is a kind of social Trinitarianism. So now we have another purported definition on the table, right? Or another usage, if not a tight definition. So if you think there's inter-Trinitarian love, that is, you think that the father and son love one another, um, then you've got, that makes you a kind of social Trinitarian. And I mean, we can talk, actually, I'm happy to talk a lot. Yeah, I mean, d-
0: as you were talking about that. In this chapter, the the inner Trinitarian love, I I do want to camp out there, so I might as well do it right now. Um, The the first names that came to mind for me were Augustine and Jonathan Edwards um, and their conception of the Trinity. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think people who don't like social Trinitarians want to lose Augustine. I'm not an Augustine scholar, but it seems like from—I read his work on the Trinity. It's been four or five years now, but from my memory— He's definitely positing some sort of an trinitarian love. Is that an accurate view of what Augustine's doing? Is he a social trinitarianism on uh, trinitarian on this view?
1: Well, see, that's the that's the well, for two questions there.
0: First one, yes,
1: I, as I read him, I and I think, I think it's undeniable the Father and Son love one another from all eternity, not only in the incarnation. That's Augustine. Yeah. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between them. I mean that that is that's who they are. So if one takes any view that according to which there's intra-Trinitarian love to be a kind of social Trinitarianism, well, then Augustine is, and Edwards is, as you say. But here's what's interesting, at least on my reading of this, so is most of the Western Latin mainstream tradition. And uh, I've got a forthcoming article. um, It's been accepted in IJST. And I don't know exactly when it's coming, but it's, it's, it's trying to shore up this case a bit more. Awesome. Okay. This, this point so that the Latin, and and here's, here's the basic um, thesis of that art of that article. It's mostly historical theology. I kind of set it up and at the very, at the very end, I say, Hey, maybe, maybe this whole thing's incoherent. That's another project for another day. But here's what, there is a lot of the tradition that says this much. And here's what it says. On the one hand, um, these theologians clearly have doctrines of divine simplicity. Those are unmistakable. And clearly, in many cases, very explicitly, they insist upon numerical sameness rather than a kind of generic notion of unity. And many of them are explicit about that. And so they'll say, if things like, if we're going to use Peter, James, and John as an analogy, we have to immediately understand it doesn't mean like, Brandon, Jordan, and Tom. Yeah. Okay. They'll immediately say that, and so they clearly have simplicity and insist on numerical sameness rather than a generic notion. That's one side. The other side of it is, and this is this is the this is the argument, and this is uh, in the in this essay, is that again and again, they overtly, sometimes explicitly, and sometimes repeatedly and forcefully affirm inter-trinitarian love and it's reciprocal and it's not just in the incarnation and they make these things in some cases very explicit in other ways it's a little bit more muted, but it's there. And so it's not just, you know, Augustine and on, sorry, Augustine and and Edward sort of on bookends, but I mean, I'm, I'm arguing it's obviously Richard of St. Victor who doesn't, by the way, start with three. He starts with simplicity doctrine and develops simplicity and divine perfection And then from simplicity and perfection, he actually gets to Trinity doctrine and the doctrine of Trinity comes to its perfection and love, which is love between father, son and spirit. It's a it's. And so it's Richard and the entire sort of or at least a big chunk of the Franciscan tradition. It's it's um, Bonaventure. Certainly you see it in SCOTUS. I mean, this I don't think there's anything unusual here. Um, you also see it in the Dominican tradition, and at least, I mean, there's some debate, and I don't know how to solve it because I'm not a, I am not am not, and will not pretend to be a Thomas specialist, <laughs> um, but uh, either a Thomas or a specialist in Thomas. But at least at some points, and Gilles Emery says this, at least at some points in his work, Aquinas clearly has this account. I mean, he's got one place where he says, this isn't in the Summa Theologica, so it's it's not seen as much, but you can see these statements in, for instance, his commentary on John. Uh, and in disputed questions and in other places. But he'll actually use something like a social analogy. And he'll say, even if, and he hear me clearly, this is for him a contrapossible. Even if it were not the case, contrapossible, of course it is, necessarily so. But even if it were not the case that there is numerical sameness shared between father, son, and spirit, even if it were not the case, they would still be, he says, united in love. Hmm. that's a pretty strong statement I mean Bonaventure will actually go so far as to say um, he'll actually use this analogy um, he'll say we have one who loves and one who is beloved and they produce a co-lover and co-beloved and his analogy is a nuptial picture I mean that's a I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's gonna get you thrown out of uh thrown out of the club these days if you're you know out of the you know if you're yeah. a classical theist, right? And this is Bonaventure. Alexander of Hales has got similar statements. And then if you move forward to the, some of the reform scholastics, you see the same sort of thing. Um Johann Gerhard on the Lutheran side, Petrus von Maastricht, mm. Amandus Polanus mm-hmm. I mean, these these are theologians who um who overtly affirm um inter-trinitarian love and some of them even making use of these sort of analogies and some of them using even nuptial language to talk about this as a, not as a direct, right? They're very, they're very clear. of uh, This is not a univocal use of, of religious language, but they'll still use these sort of really robust analogies. Now they do this on the other one hand, and by this, I mean these affirmations of divine love and they hold a divine simplicity. So here's my here's my here's my actually I'm getting kind of I get kind of frustrated by this. You could probably tell even now. What what worries me is that we we're here in the early twenty first century we're sort of picking sides. So it's either you're on the inter-Trinitarian love team, or you're on the divine simplicity team. This is what you're supposed to be, right? Either you're a classical theist or a or a social trinitarian by by the, by, these loose and sloppy definitions or usages. And what I want to say is, if we feel like we've got to choose on those points, we're all taking leave of the tradition we're claiming to inherit. Hmm. That's my view. And that that's the argument that, that's actually forthcoming, what, which you could see as a kind of piggyback onto the chapter in here. I finished this chapter and I interacted with Keith Ward and some other folk And did some other things. And then I thought, well, I want to say more. So I went back, kind of went back and dug out some more of this, um, some of this history. But again, my point is, is that using term like social Trinitarianism in sort of loose and sloppy ways doesn't really help us. And in fact, if we pit, if we want to pit that against something called classical Trinitarianism, we can easily uh, pick the wrong categories and then try to push us, push ourselves into one or the other. And if we do that, um, while claiming to sort of represent this tradition, we're not doing a very good job of representing and living into that tradition when significant parts of that tradition, um, both medieval and post-Reformation, not only are okay with affirming divine love, but in many cases do it very forcefully and and enthusiastically. So... (laughs) That's, that's a little more than you asked No, for. That, that's helpful. Um,
0: I mean, as I think about it. But that, that's my own view. So, yeah. So, for me, and this is just showing, I guess, my own uh, lack of knowledge of the, the broad tradition. I've always thought the inter-Trinitarian love was sort of like the main model of the trinity and so to think that that should be counted as social Trinitarianism seems weird to me. And I, I haven't read the the latest polemical works against social Trinitarianism or whatever. I think of, I guess, Matthew yeah. Barrett's Simply Trinity. I haven't read it, so I have no idea what it says. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I'm wondering, what is it that—I don't know if you have either—but what is it that people are so worried about when it comes to social Trinitarianism? I see a lot— if you do social Trinitarianism, you can't affirm Nicaea uh, or or maybe if you want to go, you know, post-Reformation sort of confessional documents, you can't affirm any of these. Yeah. You can't affirm yeah. Westminster. You can't affirm Second London if you do this. Particular the usually the verbiage that's used is when you do social Trinitarianism, at least in my context, you're positing three distinct wills, which it seems to me, you depending on the model, that's not necessarily the case. That's a big question. I'll let you kind of take it how you want to take it.
1: No, I, I, um, I'm going to keep repeating this because I, I want I want us to be heard. Uh, I think that the use of the label, the ST label is probably just over, like we're past the due, yeah. the expiration date on that, right? The use by date, is it's come and gone on that. Um, and I think we just need better categories. So if we are going to use the social, right, if we're going to insist on using that, what I, what I suggest in this book is, really, I'm just echoing what Mike Ray and I did over a decade ago, was to say, okay, let's think about it this way. And here's a narrow way. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one essence, understood in the sense of a kind of generic essence, right? Not in the sense of numerical sameness. And so, properly understood on that view of social trinity, the central claim of Trinitarian monotheism is, well, there's one divine nature. There's one. There's one divine kind, and the three persons have some kind of relation um, that helps them maintain oneness that goes beyond Peter, James, and John, right? And so, so in that sense, social trinitarianism is a rejection of numerical sameness, and and instead acceptance of merely generic unity. OK, um, I I'm just going to record. That's not my view. And um, I don't actually think that's a good way forward. And the there there's a question you just asked. Could that view still be consistent with the creeds or or the confessions? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think maybe by the letter. But not by the spirit of the people who were involved in framing those and then defending those because again and again, they're just not doing that. Um, Now, if by social Trinity we just mean something like the love stuff we were talking about, then my, I mean, you ask me, I'll tell you what I think. Yes, of course. um, An account of, of divine persons who love is consistent with the creeds and confessions. And again, I think I've got historical receipts to back that up too. Um, in a in other words like this isn't an imposition of something say 17th or 18th century modern um back onto the 3rd or 4th or 3rd, 12th or 13th centuries it just it isn't it was there already that's my that's
0: my view so, so walk me through a little bit i i, I want to make sure we get some time airtime on this you you spend some time working through john 17 and how this works In our, I guess, understanding of the eternal love and the Trinity. So maybe just walk me through what John 17 teaches us regarding this. And then, you know, we can ask, does this entail things like polytheism? Um, And can we possibly affirm this in a Trinitarian love? And not get tagged with the term social I mean, you keep saying let's not use the term, so maybe I just want to dump the term now because it does seem. I think you're right. It's it's almost more of a it's kind of like a guilt by association thing. Uh, it's it's not really a term with any defi- definable content, as much as as much as it is a derogatory sort of thing, where you're on you're outside the club.
1: Yeah. So what I'm trying to do, and again, I'm I'm under no illusions that we're going to have this talk on this podcast and everyone's going to be like, yep, let's just no longer use the term social Trinity. Right. It's, that's just not yeah, going to yeah. happen. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty realistic about that one as, as great as you and I are in this conversation, it's probably not going to be authoritative <laughs> for people. So I I, I get it. Right. It, we're going to be stuck with it for a while. So then I just say, well, let's at least please be clear about what we're talking about. So what I try to do in this book on the, the issue of John 17 Um, or my appeal to John 17 here is basically to say um, what I've just said, uh, what I was saying a few minutes ago about how intra trinitarian love is not a foreign concept in the mainstream Latin tradition. And you can find it in Dominicans and Franciscans in Lutherans and reformed. It's just, it's there, right? Um, It's, and it's robustly there. It's not a one-off here or one-off there. It's, it's all over. Well, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is say, um, it's not just there. Hey, look, what do you know? It's also in John's gospel, right? So look in John's gospel, and you see you see the roots of this. And if there may have been some of the tradition that, like arguably Richard, um, who thought we can we can sort of reason from perfect being theology to mutual love. If some of the people in tradition did that, I think that most of the time when they made these affirmations, I think at least a good bit of the time, maybe maybe the big majority of the time, they're actually doing so because they're reading John 17. And, and, and I think so they were getting this for good reason. So what I just try to do here is just revisit this and say, uh, in John 17, uh, we don't get much and I don't want to overread it and over conclude. We really don't. What I think we get is this little window opening, right? Just this little window opening that offers this really fleeting but precious glimpse into what Jesus refers to what they had, quote, before the world began. And what we see there is, I don't know what to say it, it's mutual love. Yeah. The love with uh, with which you loved me before the world began. And so what I'm trying to do in this part of the chapter is just sort of solidify that and sort of uh, say, that's what's going on here. Um, And so this isn't um, an imposition. Um, It's actually a lot more awkward for Trinitarian theology than if we didn't have it, because conceptually things would be neater and easier if we didn't have this. I'm just talking about sort of from a philosophical or, you know, sort of dealing with the quote unquote logical problem. It'd be neater and easier to deal with if we didn't have this, but we do have this as a part of Trinitarian theology. I think because it's just in the gospel witness. Yeah.
0: So one question I, I want to to bug you on as well is thinking through I guess the possibility and or I guess not the possibility, but the, the challenges that might come along with more of a Latin traditional Latin model. So I'm thinking of let's just say the Thomistic model, for instance, it seems to me that those sorts of models require relative identity to work. So maybe if you could explain to me what, what relative identity is, and is it actually something that is workable? Because I think most people who want to say, yes, Latin Trinitarianism is the way, haven't thought about relative identity. So help me think through what is relative identity? Is it actually workable? On for that model of the trinity
1: yeah well so someone like um someone who helped sort of recover this um this this kind of logic like peter van Inwagen. um i mean the way he explains is to say is x the same as y is an incomplete and ill-formed question and on quote-unquote kind of classical logic that's a great question and it and you should be able to answer it, right? If you have any grasp at all of X and Y, you should be able to answer it. Uh, PVI says, well, not exactly, because you you can only answer this. You can only answer the question, is X the same as Y? Is X the same what as Y? And, and once you start to clarify that, you open up at least space for the logical possibility all right. And I don't, I don't think PVI in his older work was trying to give us a full metaphysical model. I think he was doing something more modest, just a, a it's more strictly logical. Um, but at least you open up the logical space that maybe they're the same X and Y are the same with respect to one uh, indexical, but distinct and different with respect to another. And so he says, this is how this works with Trinity doctrine. They're the same God, but distinct persons. Um the Mike Ray earlier has argued um, and I haven't actually talked to the Mike about this for a while. Um, I'm guessing he still holds, holds this view, but has made arguments that to go the the relative identity route without some further, without something else leaves us in a place where we're prone to anti-realism and maybe to modalism. So he doesn't think it's going to work exactly. And I'm sympathetic to that. But then what, Ray and Brower and others do um, is reach for a version of the logic of relative identity that re- wants to maintain numerical sameness but without identity. Now, the way Brower and Ray do it is through a an um, a use of something like something like it's not obviously not material constitution because God's not, not a material object or material being, but something like the the logic of relative identity as applied to. Um, material objects and particularly the constitution um, I so now how we, you're asking the question about how does that map onto this Latin tradition we've inherited and I um, it's tricky because at least this is my reading currently and I I, I mean there are people who study the tr- there' are people who study medievals and that's that's it that's their life and I need I need their help um, to do better than I do so but as I understand it, what is really widespread in the, in the Latin scholastic tradition is a commitment to numerical sameness rather than a, a, a sort of generic or looser account. It is numerical sameness, but it's obviously also always without identity. The father is not a, identical to the son. So, um, but by my lights, at least, they all affirm that or that's a main, very mainstream view. But they don't, in many cases at least, reach for the something like this analogy of material constitution. That seems to be much more rare. Um, Probably in Peter Abelard, whether or not that's a good thing (laughs) in its favor, you know, right? But um, so numerical sameness, yes, but the the material constitution analogy, not so much, Um, at least as far as representing the tradition. So that leaves us with this sort of uh, question that you just asked. and I think I think we need more work on this. My own view right now is that um, I don't see why it doesn't work, um, or why it can't work. Let me let me say that. So I'm playing defense right now. I don't see why it can't work, and and so I need someone to show me that it can't before I'm going to just say it's it's an incoherent mess. Um, I know there are people who are making that case now. I do have a worry. You mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas in particular. And I here's where I do have a concern. Um, it's with his with his particular doctrine of divine simplicity. And that one does worry me a lot with respect to how that fits with Trinity doctrine. And I I again, um, I'm not anti I'm not anti-Aquinas. Um, I'm really not. I'm kind of in awe most of the time when I read him, most of the time. Um but but on this one, I just can't. I'd be happy to be shown how it works, but I'm just being honest with you. I can't see it yet. Um, And again, it's not the doctrine of the Trinity per se, although that's, it's not as sharp or clear as some others. It's not the doctrine of the Trinity per se, but it's the doctrine of the Trinity when allied to his doctrine of simplicity. And the the problems there seem serious enough that I'm not super optimistic. Uh, They also seem obvious and glaring enough that I keep thinking, surely he had more to say and I just don't. I don't see it yet. Uh, because he, he's not the kind of person to miss something obvious and glaring. right?
0: I mean, and the amount of smart people who have followed him makes me feel like I, I must be missing. I mean, personally, I think of myself kind of like Thomistic-ish. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. Thomist, but not, not like all the way. But it, it does seem right, weird right. to me. When he starts talking about like metaphysics of relations, well, you know, there's no real relation in God, all those sorts of things, but then he wants to say, well, there is a real relation between the persons. Um, I know there's sophisticated ways to try to cash it out, but just to me, it, it doesn't totally make sense. You've got, I feel like you got to break down somewhere and make some sort of concession to to get one of the yeah, other. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, so when he's doing when he's doing simplicity doctrine, I mean, again, there's so many. I mean. <laughs> He's brilliant and so many people in, of the house and lineage that I, you know, I'm always sort of stuttering a little bit when I, when I say this, but I'm just saying, but this is the way I see it right now. And I can't unsee it. You know, I can't, um, so the fact there are super smart people, um, who think there's a way out, the fact they're there slows me down and, you know, but at the same time, I actually have to see their way out before I can take it. And, and so far I'm not seeing it as much as i'd like to so, yeah so if you have on his simplicity doctrine uh, the father is identical i read it is identical the father is which i take to be a statement of identity uh the father is the divine essence and the son is the divine essence well by transitivity the father is the son which fails trinity doctrine 101 i mean that's really obvious and where i've seen aquinas address this i mean he's aware of the he's aware of it that's what that's actually what worries me more is where I know of the places where he's aware of this and does address it. Uh, His response doesn't help me very much. It looks like he's basically saying, well, there is a conceptual distinction. So they're really not father and son aren't saying, well, I'm like, that just sounds like anti-realism to me. Like, so there's conceptual, like we, we think of, there's a difference. So that's enough to save it from, uh, I, again, I know there's a lot more to this and I know there's a lot more than I know, and there's, I know more than I'm saying right now. So, I, <laughs> but I, I'm just saying in a nutshell, that's my worry, yeah. right? Um, that's the really short version. But I, I want to say again, and this is part of what I just want to keep. I worry in some of the contemporary polemic sort of literature about so-called classical theism and stuff. This is one of the things that worries me is that it, it there's a temptation that's sort of constant, it seems like temptation to, to boil the, the the classical tradition down to whatever we think Aquinas said, or whatever he said in a few places, or whatever some leading interpreters say he said, um, that the tradition is way bigger than him, and the reformed and Lutheran appropriations of it are way bigger than him and and so we can we can inhabit this sort of Latin tradition without thinking we need to follow him at every point. yeah
0: I mean I, I, that's me that's me. No, I'm with you. I think I remember the first time I read Richard Cross kind of basically saying, hey, Thomas is, isn't the only thing there. And he was also kind of an aberration, a unique unique figure for a period of time. Uh, made me think, wow, wait, I didn't realize that. Hold on, I'll pause. <laughs> That's not the way everybody talks about him. Now, I, right, obviously, right. I want to give due res- proper respect because I think he's a genius. Uh, but there is a sense that a lot of times in the popular literature, it seems to get boiled down to Tom- Thomas or nothing.
1: It, that's right. I, I was, you said re- reading Richard Cross. I remember, I remember my first reading of Richard Cross, right? But also, And your 10th um,
0: reading of the same page, at least for me. Yeah.
1: I know. <laughs> yeah. But also, um, I was a student of Richard Muller. And um, he's just, he's just encyclopedic on these scholastic sources. And um, I, he, he really helped. He really pressed me. To, to be on the lookout for both the con- the significant continuity that runs through this tradition, and that it is, I mean, it's really significant, but not to overlook the areas of discontinuity and disagreement and not boil everything down in this way. And in fact, you know, there's, there's not just one thing called the Thomist tradition, and there's not even necessarily one thing called Thomism, and a lot of the later scholastics are pretty eclectic and in their reception of these things. And they don't necessarily seem like they're, you know, feel pressured to, you know, to, to join a club and pay the dues. Um, yeah, they, they don't seem to see it that way. That's good. So I think those of us who who follow them shouldn't feel that sort of same pressure either. That that's not to discount or try to undercut what I think is the really significant um, continuity that runs through. But there's also significant disagreement. Like on Trinity doctrine, um, all these different definitions of person. There is the well-known one that people cite of Boethius, and then the adaptation of that in in Thomas. But there's uh, there are others too. I mean, um, Hugh, um, Richard, um, Henry of Ghent. I mean, they're just doing different things with person language. They're doing different things with simplicity doctrine, and then when they're hooking simplicity doctrine and personal language together, they're doing things different yet. So there's there's more to the tradition than uh, than some of the polemical literature would lead us to believe.
0: Yeah, that's good. So one last question. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it because I know we're, we're getting close to an hour, but I, I want to get your, your thoughts on—I think you talk about this attribute of covenant faithfulness, which from my reading of you—now you can correct me if I'm wrong— seems to what most of our listeners are, would think of as the covenant of redemption. So I think at least in, I don't know, the last five years or so, it seems to me that there's been almost like uh, a fear of the covenant of redemption sort of language uh, because they think this posits some sort of polytheism or panentheism or pantheism, or pantheism or something like that. So I guess number one question, is your language of attributive of covenant faithfulness either synonymous or close to this? and if it's not uh, what's the distinction and then does that cause problems that are not monotheism
1: that's a good question so um yeah i'm not a big proponent of the pactum salutis uh myself i j- well i come from a uh a, a theological tradition that don't that doesn't make a lot of it um, there is an argument that Arminius is one of the sort of early, uh, proponents of it, per, of the Pactum Salutis language and, co- and concept hmm. per se, which is kind of an interesting twist if that's true. Um, anyhow, um, but it's still not sort of a big part of my own sort of theological heritage. And, um, but my, my, cons- the concerns I would have with it, um, wouldn't be the sort of worry that it. It turns into a kind of polytheism, or entails a kind of polytheism. I, I really don't have that. Um, um, I mean, I know Bart says that pretty forcefully. I mean, Bart says everything forcefully, but uh, I know Bart and some some people of the house and lineage of Bart have that worry. Uh, my my concerns would be slightly different. You know, they would be placed otherwise. Um, but again, this isn't. It's just not something that's a big part of of what I mean. Now, when I when I talk about covenant faithfulness, what I what I want to say is not that a covenant is essential to the divine life, as such, right? But that God's here's what I here's what I want to say at least, whether or not I say it well um, or adequately. What I want to say is that holy love is essential to God, of the divine essence. Um, and by essential, I mean you can you can run that in the contemporary. Um, Modal sense, if you, if it makes it easier, in other words, there are no possible worlds, um, there are no possible worlds in which God exists, in which God does not exemplify holy love between the divine persons. Okay, and um, then therefore, because it's essential to God, anything that God does out extra is going to um, is going to flow from that. that. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it doesn't mean that he has to create a world, an external world, but if God does, it's going to re- it's going to reflect that. And then what I and here's what I here's what I love about some of the some of the older some of the older uh, Protestant theologians, and also some of the some of the recovery of this. I don't think they mean it as a recovery per se, but some of the recovery of these themes by recent New Testament scholarship, and and here like people like Tom Wright and others. Who who see this theme of covenant and find it find it powerfully um, woven throughout as a as a thread throughout the canon of scripture, and I say yes and amen, and that is that sort of covenant. In other words, the God whose nature is holy love, whose essential holy love, creates from that and for that, not out of necessity, but out of um, but out of freedom. But having created that commits um, commits himself to it in this relationship of covenant and that's why we see these sort of uh what I'm that's why we see the the development of this culminating in Christ as the climax of the covenant again to use one of one of Tom's phrases um, and what I'm trying to do here is to say among other things to say again, this is one of the this is one of the sort of bifurcations we sometimes get in contemporary theological circles we don't like this older stodgy metaphysical perfect being theology we're into covenant and i just say why would we have to choose like seriously and when we read um when we read for instance book of hebrews The language of covenant and the the point, the pointing back to Genesis, well, whether it's 15 or 18 or exactly where it's going, um, it's going somewhere back there. And either way it's going, right? Either place it's going, it's going to God saying, there is no one greater by whom to swear. You know, if that's not perfect being theology, it's getting pretty close, so you get all the themes that the contemporary biblical theologians like in the book of Hebrews, temple, covenant, Israel, right? You're getting all of this. Um, you're getting all these these themes that are so dearly beloved by biblical theologians, theological interpreters of Scripture. And I'm saying, I want to say Amanda, all that. But I think, why would one pit that against the very thing that it points toward, which is this exalted notion of God as this perfect being. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I <laughs> I totally agree. Th- that's what I mean by that. though. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That, so that's helpful. So one thing I do want to ask that's totally not related to Trinity or anything is we have, I think, a good amount of listeners who th- they're students or they, they want to learn more and they want to study f- in their future. Do you have any advice um, so I think we got a lot of people who are like they want to be in the, this great tradition of, of the church, and a lot of them want to do like they're intrigued by analytic theology. They want to do that. How do you think best to meld that? Should they go down a philosophy track? Should they go down a historical theology track? Um, what is your advice on those sorts of things?
1: Well, that's a great question. Can I, can I just back up and at the sound at the risk of I at the risk of sounding like overly pious or whatever, but I. I, I just, I believe this. I want to say it. Uh, first advice would be to pray and go to church mm. and, and preach, uh, find some way to proclaim the, these truths and, and to share them and to, to live, live in them and live them out. Um, again, I know we are all assuming all that, but it's not always safe to assume. Yeah, And, and I, I really mean that now, whether, I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, academic pipelines are, are plugged and feel is super, super crowded. And he's just, I feel like duty bound to remind everyone of that. And even if it's discouraging, but I don't mean to be discouraging us particularly, like, especially if, if one wants to study further, believe me, I want to encourage it, especially if it's analytic and confessional and all that, all the good stuff. Um, Believe me, I want to encourage you, but I do feel like I need to at least be realistic with you, and that perhaps should caution you or slow you down, but maybe not, and especially not if you're open to doing analytic theology within the context of the church. In other words, there's something we haven't mentioned here. We've been talking about theological interpretation. Theological interpretation of scripture and that that sort of rising movement analytic theology and that rising movement um you mentioned historical theology and i i'm I'm thrilled to see there's some really good stuff being done by historical theologians that's another movement but then we've also got this another movement yet, and that's the the sort of groups um exemplified by by people like the Center for pastor theologians and uh um, I, th- I want to see more analytic theologians in that room too. And because, I mean, I'm, I'm just being really frank. Um, it, we can do analytic theology in, in a kind of way that's off-putting to pastors and parishioners. But in some cases, it's like the most direct route to connecting with pastoral care. And I, I really mean that. Um, the, the sort of clarity of expression and rigor of argument I found people really benefit from the declarative expression, especially if one intentionally targets this toward non-specialist. Um, if I haven't done that enough tonight I'm sorry but uh, uh, but I'm saying if, if one makes that a mission and, and there are some good examples of it um, maybe not quite enough good examples, but there are some good examples of people who do this. so I, I would say do that as far as where to go like which route to go um, I, th- I don't mean this as a cop-out it's it's really sincere. It kind of depends upon the particular interest and research goals, and so whether one goes through a historical theology route or a systematic theology Ph.D. program or a philosophy program is going to depend partly on the precise, you know, the precise topic one wants to study. The other thing to consider about this is um, where one might start in a teaching career. So, like when we're doing our discussions right here. I mean, our, the last 50 minutes, we've been talking partly biblical exegesis and partly historical theology, a good bit of historical theology, and partly logic and metaphysics, you know, relative identity and stuff. Well, these all come together sort of at the top of the discipline, if you will, but it's quite different when you're anticipating teaching, uh, say, freshman uh, students, because in those cases, um, an intro to Bible or intro to OT or NT or an intro to Christian thought, beliefs, or theology, or an intro to philosophy or, or baby logic class, those are all going to look really different. And so one question just to ask yourself if you're thinking about pursuing a kind of analytic theology project is just to step all the way back, though, and think, where would I be most passionate about teaching if, if, if I land a teaching job, coveted and rare though they are, and I'm teaching, um, freshman and sophomore in gen ed courses? What would I prefer? Like, where am I going to be most excited about? What am I going to be most excited about teaching there? Because at that level, the, the, the disciplines are further apart than they are when, once, once we get to a, a kind of, um, specialized topic like, metaphysics of the Trinity
0: or something like no, that. That's, that's awesome. That's really helpful. So Tom, do you have anywhere on the internet that people can go find your stuff and say, I want to follow the work that you're putting out and, and keep up with it other than just Googling your name?
1: No, <laughs> I mean, sorry, maybe I should. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm, I have friends on Facebook yeah. and I mostly use that just for family and, and, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, football and cross country and backpacking pictures. Other than that, I don't, um, I mean, I have a faculty, you know, page and, and I, I guess there's a, an author page on Amazon. Okay. Perfect. Um, one could look there, but I don't like run a blog or I'm not part of a, an ongoing thing a lot. Um,
0: well, I tell you, sorry, no, <laughs> cause I think a lot of our listeners are probably gonna want to keep up with the books that you're coming out. With. So maybe tell me, do you have any works in progress that will come out in the next Two three years uh, that we should be aware yeah. of and be looking for.
1: Yeah, Lord willing. So, uh, I'm doing one. I'm co-authoring it with um, with a couple of couple of other people. Um, it's it's a definitely a detour off of the topics we're talking about. Um, it's it might give me a I don't know. It's gonna it's a different kind of project, but it's um, it's recovering historic Protestant doctrines of good works. And particularly drawing from um, Protestant scholastics and especially the reformed scholastics more and looking at how they thought about good works. And it turns out they thought about them very differently than a lot of 20th century North American and 21st century North American evangelicalism, like, like really, really differently. Like, like Francis Turretin asks and answers the question, are good works necessary for salvation? We affirm. And, and when it comes, if you, you dig deeper, because, of course, they're always going to dig deeper. Um, he wants to say not for justification per se, but for, for salvation considered broadly. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, yeah. And uh, and no question about it. And not just necessary for witness, not just necessary for our testimony, um, not just necessary in those ways, but necessary actually to go to heaven. Um, and, and, um, he's not nearly alone, but there is significant disagreement among these Protestant scholastics over how they're necessary. And some will say necessary with respect to, um, uh, as a condition, and then they'll talk about what kind of condition even some will say necessary with respect to cause, and then they'll talk about what kind of cause, um they really do. Uh, these are good works are a, rightly understood for many of the Protestant scholastics, a cause of salvation. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, it a whole lot hinges on what we mean by yeah, cause. Yeah. Because otherwise you're right back either to Catholicism or you're all the way back to Pelagianism. And they're, they're very well aware of that. Um, so it's, yeah, some of them, I mean, uh, the Lutheran uh, scholastic Johann Gerhard, he's got an entire um, it's like a 300 pages devoted to to good works. So there's this massive sort of trajectory of that. So I, I am working on this with a couple of friends. And one of them is, it's going to be a different kind of book though. Um, it's not going to be the book that probably we should come out first, which should be like a major university press monograph that just sorts all this stuff out in great detail. That, that should probably come first. We're not doing that. Instead, what we're doing is I'm doing some of that work. And then I've got a a New Testament scholar looking at why, right? So the biblical basis for this. So these, these Protestant classics thought this, why would they think this? Well, it turns out not only James, but Paul and Jesus had a lot to say about these things. And then um, um, the last section is going to be a couple chapters that are more pastoral theology. So more sort of practical theology. So like this is sort of how to actually recover these in churches today. So that is going to be a different kind of project, not so much AT, um, although it's going to be there, in there. Um, and then I'm actually also working on a um, um, a one-volume theology textbook of about 350,000 words. And that that's a big project, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to hurry it because that's not the kind of thing that should be hurried, but I am working on that too. And then I have in mind after that, in mind, but not on paper and not under contract. Um, I have another sort of strictly analytic theology project in mind, and that's going to be, um, um, again, trying to bring together some historical theology and use of contemporary analytic metaphysics and logic. So those are the things either on paper or, um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, in the works. I mean,
0: that sounds tremendous. So for those who are listening, keep your eyes peeled for those things and I will do my best to share them as they come out for those who are interested. And I want to thank you, uh, Tom, for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Uh, Hopefully it was uh, edifying. I think it was edifying for me. I learned a lot, so I really enjoyed it. So Number one, keep your eyes peeled for these things. Go buy his analytic theology book, the introduction to it, Invitation to Analytic Christian Theology or something along those lines. Um, If you Google Tom McCall, you'll find it. Um, Get that. I mean, I think it's an awesome book and then get your hands on this one as well. I think there's a lot of really helpful stuff in here. So for those who've been listening, thank you for tuning in to the only analytic uh, confessional and Baptist podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.